Welcome, everyone. We are thrilled to have Chris Hood on the podcast today. With over three decades of experience in digital strategy, Chris is the author of The Customer Transformation, offering a compelling roadmap for businesses to align with customer needs. His transformative seven-stage strategy has impacted diverse sectors from finance to healthcare. As the insightful voice behind the Chris Hood Digital Show, he shares wisdom to help businesses unlock their digital potential globally. With a rich background at Google leading transformation processes and innovation contributions to Fox Broadcasting, Chris is a true pioneer. As a co-founder of the Blind Squirrel Games, his influence spans various industries. Currently teaching at Southern New Hampshire University, Chris bridges the gap between business and technology. Join us as we talk to Chris today on the Disruptive Minds Podcast. You are listening to the Disruptive Minds Podcast, home of the entrepreneur. Thank you so much for joining us today, Chris. I'm real excited to talk about the customer transformation. You literally wrote the book on the customer transformation. I'm real excited to get into how customers are changing in today's society and a bit about your book. Sounds great. So happy to be here and talk about it. So could you give the listeners a little bit of an idea of who you are and uh, what your background is? Yeah, my name is Chris Hood. I'm a digital strategist, author, speaker. I spend a lot of time helping companies that need to better align with their customers, thus what my book is all about. And over the course of the last seven years, I worked for Google uh, heading up a lot of conversations in the digital strategy and innovation space and had the great opportunity to work with some fabulous companies. And uh, for fun, I like to watch movies and listen to music and also write. I, writing is one of these things that I enjoy doing for fun as well as professionally. So yeah, that gives you a little insight to who I am. Yeah, so I was able to find a brief out a, a brief snippet of your book on Amazon. I I read through that, but could you give the listeners an idea as to what your book's about and what influenced you to write it? Yeah, so customer transformation is a seven-stage strategy for customer alignment and business value. And what the book does is it walks through a framework called the customer transformation framework so that you can better understand how to align with your customers across the entire organization. So this is not just uh, customer-facing uh, teams within your organization. Typically, we think like marketing, as an example, or sales is customer-facing. This actually looks at the entire culture, all of the teams in your organization, and goes through this framework to help you better understand how to, again, align with your customers. I started developing this framework, oh, maybe eight years ago. And over the course of the time that I was at Google, I had a, I, again, I mentioned I was talking with a lot of different types of customers and some of their challenges. And one of the things that I noticed was if we think about a term that I believe a lot of your listeners probably are familiar with called digital transformation, what I saw was that the misunderstanding of digital transformation was actually preventing them from being successful 
in developing these digital tools and services for their customers. And I wanted to change the focus, which is why I call it customer transformation, because in reality, it's your customers that are transforming and your business has to be able to keep up with that transformation. Um, and we see this constantly, uh, especially this year, we see a lot of organizations that are either not aligned with what their customers want or they're not able to keep up with the changing demands that their customers have. And as a result, I felt, well, this is a great time to write a book on it. And, and that's what we got. Yeah. It, it sounds to me like the old mantra, you know, the customer is always right. You know, the idea of this customer focused sales, the customer focused service has really been changed by technology. I was wondering could you explain what you consider the transformation to be? Like, what is this transformation that you're seeing and how is it impacting the modern consumer? Yeah, well, it's great that you mentioned the customer is always right. I think that is something we often hear. And I mentioned it in my book when I first started working back in the late 80s. I was fed the mantra, the customer is always right. I think today there's definitely some more nuances in that statement. The customer definitely isn't always right. The customer is definitely never always reasonable. But the thing that we are seeing is that today because of technology, because of social media, because of the way we are connected with each other, the customer today is more empowered than ever before. They have an open platform to be able to complain, to share their opinions, reviews. Uh, you could go to Twitter right now and probably go to any major brand, do a search, and you're going to find somebody who's complaining or, or mm -hmm. who is sharing a bad experience that they had. And that's what we're talking about. That's the empowerment that they have today. And their choices are unlimited, meaning it used to be, well, I have to go down to the local grocery store and buy my bread from that grocery store. Today, I can buy bread through Amazon and have it delivered the same day, right? So because our choices through technology are everywhere, are ubiquitous in theory now, and we are not tied down, the moment we have a bad experience, we are moving on to another company that can serve our needs. I use the story often where uh, a couple of nights ago, I try to go buy a pizza on Pizza Hut. I have a bad experience. I can't get the pizza into my shopping cart. There's a bug in the app. So what do I do? I go to Domino's, Domino's. right? It's that easy. And because we are so much more empowered today, that means that the businesses that serve us have to be more critical in terms of ensuring that they can meet our needs. And, and that's the area that we focus in on the book to, to understand how you balance that while at the same time understanding that your consumers are more engaged than ever before, more, uh, you know, opinionated than ever before, more uh, um, willing to leave than ever before, right? 
those are the challenges that companies are faced with today. Yeah, I thought the point about customer empowerment was really important because when you think back to online reviews, especially, you find people that are either leaving very, very positive experiences or very, very negative experiences. And what gets lost in the shuffle is kind of those three, four star experiences. The people that were, you know, satisfied, nothing exceptional, but, you know, it's hard to gauge how you're interacting with this middle group because of the more choices thing that you were talking about, right? You don't know why somebody just decided to go to a competitor. It can be something as simple as a page wasn't loading very fast or they didn't see the color option. They couldn't find it in the nav bar, right? There's so much going on in this new society where the customers are empowered and friction is more and more important than ever, right? Reducing friction. Because of that empowerment, the customers are not going to stick around. They'll just jump to one of those choices. And you're not going to hear about it because the three-star, four-star experiences never get publicized. Yeah, it's interesting. When I go and let's say I want to go to a new restaurant, I will go look at the reviews. And I will actually always go and look at the one-star reviews. And this takes a little effort, but if you go and you look at the one-star reviews, you can typically tell if there's a consistency or if that individual who left the one-star review is simply doing it because they had some unrealistic expectation. So we talk about the customer is always right. And today we see a lot of times where the customer is probably not reasonable. You can go in, for example, uh, you, you might read a one-star review and say, yeah, I went and the food was okay, but you know, I, I sat there and I was waiting for somebody to bring me water for two minutes and I think they deserve a one-star review. Like there's actual reviews out there like this, right? So you can go and read those and get a good idea if it's just the individual or if it's the company and then compare that against your three and four and five-star reviews to try to understand where the consistency is but this is an example of you're not going to be able to please everybody, but you have to at least understand what the consumer expects and wants so that you can try to appease as many as possible. Yeah, that's interesting because that is something that I also do is I check those one-star reviews because a lot of times they don't really say anything, right? Right. Other, other times they might say something specific. Like if you see six people complaining about the roast chicken, you know, not to order the roast chicken, right? Like yeah. sometimes it's like, especially at restaurants, it's just one or two menu items that you're like, yeah, might not want to order that. This is a steakhouse. Don't order chicken, you know? So it, it definitely can lead to some insights. And the idea that the consumer has access to these insights is both a really, really empowering and a really, really scary thing, right? Because when, they're, when you have access to other people's opinions and other people's insights, it can help you make a more educated choice, but you can also find bad actors, so to speak, in the review space, right? So sometimes you'll find people that are pumping their listings full of fake reviews or, you know, paying somebody to review or, you know, doing some unfavorable, unscrupulous things. But you might also find, like I had an experience once when I was selling online, that somebody left a negative review on like one of the first sales we had. 
it killed the product overnight. One negative review meant that nobody ever ordered this product again and literally had our company get stuck with an entire shipping container of chairs. So, you know, there, there's a lot of power in this review and it has a lot of drive. And I think this is one of the biggest things with the modern consumer is that access to information and being able to gauge how credible that information is, is a really important part of being an informed consumer. Absolutely. I mean, we as consumers are looking at three to four sources of information before making a purchase decision, which means we are looking at reviews and those reviews are influencing whether we buy something or not. And to your point, there are bad actors that are on the negative side as well as bad actors on the positive side. So you could see a thousand five-star reviews. You've got to actually go and do the research to determine if those are legitimate reviews or fake reviews. Right? There's really no easy solution for this yet, but you know, Amazon has verified purchaser, right? So you can go and see if somebody is actually purchased that product and then determine if those reviews are valid. But look, I, I hear you. I've seen where the negative reviews can cause a product to just crumble. And I've seen where a positive review can give a bad product, good press, you know? Mm -hmm. um, but we have to think about this beyond just the reviews as well. Reviews right. is one source of validation if you are aligned with your customer or not. Other sources are going to be social media and uh, surveys that you might conduct and generally just sales. Like if you've got sales that are going out the crazy, right? Then mm -hmm. you've got something. And I know there's a, probably a lot of people out there that say, look, I, I don't really care what the reviews say. As long as I am selling and I'm making my customers happy, then that's fine. People are going to have their opinions. It's the balance between how do you leverage those opinions to improve your product or how do you leverage those opinions to ensure that you're at least stable and that you're not losing business because somebody is, you know, reading something that, you know, doesn't sit well with them. Yeah, I really like that you brought up the idea of there usually being three to four touch points when making a decision, right? This is the age old adage of why people can't figure out why billboards make sense, right? Because as a consumer, you're driving down the road, you're going, I don't think I've ever bought something because I saw it on a billboard. But that's one of these four touches. And with the internet, there's so many different ways to get these touches, right? You can get them through display ads, you can get them through PPC ads, you can get them through a social media influencer, you can get it through a brand social page, you can get it from a YouTube video, you can get it from all different kinds of angles. And the, the big thing about technology is it has really expanded the number of ways that a company can hit us with touch points. Like in the middle of this call, I got a text message from Buffalo Wild Wings telling me that it's half off, buy one, get one free wings tonight. Like the technology is really increasing that point of touch points. And I think that's been a major impact on the consumer and how they think. Well, what's interesting is you refer to them as touch points, 
And granted, that's an industry term. I think most people who are listening understands a touch point, especially in a marketing campaign. But what we're actually seeing is a move away from the traditional concept of touch points. And I've outlined this actually in the book. I call them people interfaces, which is there are any number of ways that a consumer can interface with your business and how the business can interface back with the consumer. And we think about touch points like, well, there's an ad, so I'm going to click on it, right? Yeah, sure, there's billboards that are more visual in nature, but look, we are beyond the simple notion of having to touch things. We've got smart devices and smart homes and my thermostat is smart. I can tell it to change the temperature, smart cars. Everything is voice controlled now. Heck, ChatGPT through OpenAI as of yesterday announced that ChatGPT is going to be able to see and hear things that you want to communicate with. So you could basically use your camera, hold up a picture of something, and ChatGPT can scan that, look at it, analyze it, and return a response, right? This demonstrates that we're not quite at the full multi-sensory type of experiences, but we are definitely getting closer to looking at, through technology, all of the different senses that we have can be integrated into an experience with an organization. Now, you know, I always laugh when I talk about Taste TV, which there's a Japanese scientist in uh, who has invented basically a way to lick the screen of a television and taste what it's on, what's on the screen, right? <laughs> um, We've had smell in theaters back to the 1960s, but imagine if your mobile device emitted some type of smells or sensory type of thing so that as you're scrolling through videos and ads, you see some type of, you know, we talk about like a Taco Bell commercial and now I can smell tacos coming through my phone, right? So it's, it is definitely going beyond the concept of touches, right? Right. So these touch points are maturing into people interfaces where we see more humanity involved in the process and that alignment between what what is relevant to us from a human perspective is being translated into how do we connect and interface with businesses. I really like the term customer, sorry, people interfaces. Yep, because it implies the idea of a conversation, right? It implies the idea of inputs and replies because nowadays you don't just have people going out and looking at something or, you know, experiencing something, but you have people actively interacting with these brands, right? We've had challenges, we've had hashtags, uh, we've had contests, there's viral trends, right? Nowadays, we have Wendy's roasting McDonald's daily on Twitter, right? It, it's evolved past the point, like you said, of just a touch here and a touch there to the point where we're interfacing with these brands and they're interfacing back. Yeah, that's right. And here's another way that you can look at it. When we talk about the customer and engaging with the customer and the technologies that are around us, a lot of people want to 
point to, well, AI. Look, we're, we need to bring in AI. AI is going to be the thing that solves everything, which it really isn't. But okay, so we're going to focus and spend money on AI. And then we talk about that human connection and the lack of understanding of that human connection in AI. Okay. But here's what's always funny. No business out there is attempting to sell to a non-human customer. You're not building technology to sell to robots, right? There's no robots out there with a bank account that can make a decision and buy your product. So if we are selling to humans 100% of the time, then we have to think about that interface from a human perspective because there is no other customer for you. That's that's really interesting because maybe we do get to the point in the future where robots are making decisions because I think a lot of people haven't thought about building it in the other direction yet, right? There's been a lot of thoughts about using chat GPT to sell or create marketing material. But imagine if, you know, somebody was on a diet and they decided I'm going to have a robot decide my shopping choices for me. Or if, uh, let's say you were a construction company and you just wanted to get the best deal possible on two by fours, right? It's something that's pretty common interchangeably. There's a world in the future where a computer could actually make the optimal decision for you, although we're not there yet. And I think it's really interesting that we're taking something that has almost, it's a logic driven interface, right? Something that's taking inputs and outputs and it's coming up with logical conclusions and it's currently selling to something that's organic right something that has flaws its calculations something that's flowing right and imperfect and because of that there's room for this humanity to come in and fill the gaps for that ai but it, it, it's interesting to think that like we could get in a world where the economy is much more intertwined with the technology and how the technology interacts with each other with just touch points of human interaction. Well, I think we can get to a point where we probably will all have some sort of personal assistant, right? And yeah. we'll call it an AI. We have a phone. We're not too far off from having a personal assistant on that phone that can help us make decisions. And then in theory, that personal assistant can live virtually wherever we're at. That's fine. And you could say, okay, that virtual assistant is programmed to make decisions, You know, whether it's, as you said, I'm on a diet and I need to create a shopping list. It can make those decisions. Heck, these personal assistants could help us in our dating lives. Uh, we're walking through a bar, the personal assistant pairs up with another virtual assistant says, Hey, there's a compatibility meet at the bar. You meet new people this way, right? There, mm -hmm. There's a lot of things that we could potentially do with a personalized virtual assistant that learns and mimics our needs. However, at the end of the day, you as the owner of that personal assistant still have to tell it what you want. You still have to authorize it. You're right. not going to have your personal assistant go do grocery shopping for you and spend $500 on groceries without you being aware of that, right? Mm -hmm. So there's still a validation 
or a command that you have to integrate. And maybe you can adjust it, modify it. Like, ah, eh, you you met me up with this, you know, person and I didn't really get along with them. Next time, don't match me with similar type of people, you know. Um, right. or make sure that the budget is still under a hundred dollars per grocery store visit. Like these are still the rules that we have to understand and that the AI is going to have to adhere to, you know, and, and still in order to be successful. Yeah. I mean, there's always going to be some degree of human interaction because I think this is where people have a misunderstanding about AI and how AI works. Right, because AI really, when it was in its infancy, it was built out of a lot of these like large language models, meaning that there would be a database of information and they would only be able to access whatever information is in that database. Now that database has expanded to the entire internet basically. And that's why the models have advanced so far, but there's still a need for this input, right? Because if there's no input, the artificial intelligence is not very good and it's not very useful. And that is why you still have to prompt chat GPT or one of these things very well. But as you can see, they're getting better. The more data, the more prompts they see, the more things that they, they get their hands on because that's how AI functions. It functions off of the inputs and then the feedback off of those inputs. But what I was wondering is how can we use all these new technologies and all these new uh, ways of reaching and interacting with customers to make sure that we're interacting with the right customers, right? The people that are going to be the best fits for our businesses. Sure. Well, part of that is doing your research. And part of that is evolving what your understanding of who your customer is. So there's a lot of data out there You've got to be able to look at that data as people make purchases, understand the demographics. You can actually leverage AI to look through that data and to get a better understanding or image of who your customer is. But it's amazing, especially when we look at different types of companies, smaller companies, entrepreneurs that are desperate to get customers will really attempt to sell to anybody. And I use the analogy of Let's say I mentioned tacos uh, or pizza. Uh, let's say that I'm Domino's and I have a new pizza that I want to put out and it's going to be a cauliflower crust vegan pizza. And I send out a survey to a hundred of my customers. Well, I can approach that two different ways. I can send it out to any random 100 customers some of which are going to be meat eaters, some of which who are not going to be vegans, some of which who may, I don't know. And then I'm going to get feedback. Well, I'm, I might not get the right feedback because I've just blasted this out to a hundred random people mm -hmm. versus finding a hundred vegans that I can share my new vegan style Domino's pizza with and see what they think about it. Right. That's a big difference. And so smaller companies tend to just cast this net out and say, hey, let's just get random people into a room and find out what they think about the product and often try to sell and it doesn't work. And then they think, well, this isn't working. You've got the wrong customer or you don't understand your customer. The problem is, is we see this on a much larger scale happening as well. 
we see this currently happening at companies like Disney, or I would even argue Bud Light is a great example. Bud Light has no clue right now who their customer is. Mm -hmm. And this is a leadership problem more than, say, a marketing problem. When your leadership has no clue who your customer is and, quite honestly, doesn't care, then you are in for a lot of heartache and losing a lot of business. So you have to really focus in on who that customer is, look at the data, make decisions based on what the data tells you. So again, I have vegans, I have meat eaters, I'm going to make a decision based on that, right? Not just like, hey, we don't have, you know, Domino's as of today, I think they have some vegetable pizzas, but they don't have cauliflower crust, maybe at a right. couple of locations uh, worldwide they do. But you don't see them coming out and saying, hey, we've swapped our entire menu to vegan. No, because mm -hmm. they know who their customer is. They they know what the top selling pizza and toppings are, pepperoni being the number one topping in the world, right? They mm -hmm. know that. And and no one actually eating ham and pineapple pizza. Like that's an impossibility. <laughs> we won't get into that. Uh, that's um, my favorite. <laughs> yeah, there you go. But but you see the point here, right? Is that you're not making decisions based on your own internal biases or opinions or attempting to change your demographic or market because of those opinions and just ignoring who your customer base is. That's data. You have to look at that data. You have to analyze that data and you have to make decisions on that data and remove the bias and opinions from, you know, disrupting your um, entire marketing and sales practices. Yeah, I think that's really important to understand what population you are selecting when you're looking at data. Because like you said, there's a million different ways you can slice up that data. And sometimes you can insert biases and other things that are unintentional. But one of the things that I am a big proponent of is the idea of the 80-20 principle, you know, like the Pareto rule, where 80% of your business usually comes from 20% of your customers. And this is, I find true across most industries because whether you're a clothing brand and you have, you know, fans that, you know, shop and wear your clothes every day, or you're McDonald's and you have, you know, the controversial term heavy user that was around during the supersize me era where they had people that were eating at McDonald's at least twice a day. Or if you're a sales and marketing agency and you have, you know, a handful of customers that are using your services the most often, it shows you what kind of person and what kind of traits those people might have that are going to be your biggest fans, that are going to be your biggest consumers, that are going to be the people that are most engaged with you. And what that allows you to do is go out and find more people like this top 20%. Oh, absolutely. Here's a good way you can look at it. If you do any type of advertising, so you, you put some Google ads out there or social media ads out there, and if somebody clicks on it, odds are that's your target demographic. <laughs> they've, they've engaged with it. They've clicked on it. If they don't, then that's not your demographic. Move on, right? Mm -hmm. So analyze that, look at it, and then make adjustments. But this is also why Google and other ad services are tracking that to help you to say, look, 
this is the demographic that's actually clicking on it. We're going to now start to display this ad to more individuals within that demographic because that's the basic premise. If they've bought from you, that's probably your demographic. Analyze it, extrapolate it, and then go after it. Yeah, I, I think there's a lot of people that get in their own head about these types of things. And a, a big part of it is just listening to the customers and evaluating the information that's in front of you. Like you said, Google and all these other ad platforms, they're tracking this data. It's just up for you to digest the data, look at the data, and you know make some observations. And it doesn't have to always be oh, I figured out people that are left-handed that live in San Jose, California in a income group of blank, blank, blank is my customer base. It can be as simple as, oh, it looks like a lot of people that are in the entrepreneurship category are clicking on my ad. I wonder if entrepreneurs might need my product. And then you can narrow it down from there as you go on. But it doesn't always have to be one of these crazy eureka insights that a lot of people, you know, get hung up on finding. That's right. Now, in my book, I actually produced a well, what I call customer value alignment tool. And so what you can do is you can go to your customer base, ask them questions, and I provide example questions in the book. And then also ask your internal teams the same questions so that you can understand if there is an alignment between your internal teams and your customer, or if they are misaligned, in which case something has to be adjusted. And I would argue that if you're misaligned, the customer is the right point that you have to align towards. Right? You don't just look right. at it and say, wow, our internal team is all aligned, but our customer is way off. How do we get our customer to change to what we think? That's the wrong way to approach it. If your customer is thinking one thing and your entire internal team is, is different, you've got to change your internal team and processes and strategies to be more aligned with what your customer is thinking. And that's a challenge, especially as you grow your business. But there's definitely now a tool available to help you do that. Yeah, I really love the idea of, you know, asking those same questions to the internal team. I don't think a lot of people think about doing that because they just get the information out the customer and they assume that their team thinks about the customer the same way that they do. When actually this, any organization is a big game of telephone, right? You say something to one guy who says something to another guy, says something to another guy and things can get lost in communication. So it's really important that you're checking both points because what you think you might be in alignment on, you might actually not be in alignment on. That's right. You could have customer satisfaction scores that are very high, but your internal employee satisfaction scores are very low. You can have customers tell you anything you want to hear if you manipulate the questions in a way that gets the response you're looking for. I mean, that's what polls all over the world are doing right now, especially when we're getting into the political season. Polls are based on the quality of the data and the quality of the questions. So just because you see one thing from your customer doesn't necessarily mean that that is an accurate view. Again, we also have biases. 
that's the number one problem, really, is you have an internal bias of, I believe I know what the customer wants, so I'm going to give them what I believe they want, but you're not actually looking at the data to help you make those decisions. When you're, when you're going forward without the customer involved in that process, you're most likely going to lose those customers. Yeah, it goes back to the saying that we've been talking about this whole time about the customer always being right. It's changed, right? It's more nuanced than what it used to be. But the customer is really that pole that your magnet should be pointing towards because they're ultimately the one opening their checkbook, writing that check, doing that credit card payment, paying with cash, doesn't matter. They're the ones making that decision. So the last thing I had for you is what are you up to next and how can the listeners find out more about you, your book, your podcasts, whatever you got going on? Yeah. Well, right now I'm actually writing a companion for my book for nonprofit agencies. So if you have a nonprofit, even though the principles of the book still apply, there's some subtle differences with nonprofits. So I wanted to put together a companion guide uh, that could go along with the book to help those organizations as they're trying to align with their customers. And again, we get into that. I get into that with the companion guide. Otherwise, I also have a fantasy book that is going to come out shortly. Uh, that's a book that I've been working on for a little while. I'm excited about it. Can't wait to get that out. But if you want to get in touch with me and follow me and find out all of this great stuff, get a copy of my book, listen to my podcast, read some of my blog articles. You can do all of that on my website, chrishood.com, C-H-R-I-S-H-O-O-D.com. Follow me there and stay in touch. Awesome. Well, thank you for coming on, Chris. I think we all learned something about our customers, how they're changing, how to think about our customers. And I'd encourage some people to check out your book. Thank you guys so much for tuning in this episode of Disrupted Minds. We're on every Monday and every Friday. So make sure you don't miss a single episode. Have a great day. Mm -hmm.